Right, it's good to see you tonight. If you do not have a handout or a booklet and want to follow along, and I hope you will, if you do not have one, raise your hand for just a moment. Everybody got one? If you were not here last week, uh, I'm going to do something real quick here at the beginning of it. I'm going to let you go ahead and fill in those blanks because if you've got a book from last week, we're on to the second lesson this week. And I want you to be able to follow along and you can go back and look at those from last week, uh, the reality of the Bible. We talked last week about what is the Bible. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the receiving of the Bible. It's uh, kind of an interesting thing. We go to church week in and week out. If you've been raised in what we call the Bible Belt, we go to church each week and week in. And what we do is we base everything upon God's Word, the Bible. But so many of us challenge ourselves sometimes by thinking about what is the Bible? Last week we talked about the reality of the Bible. Bear with me for just a moment. I'm going to give you those blanks if you'd like to fill in. If you were not here last week, how many of you was not here last week? And how many of you is not coming back next week? Well, if you weren't here, I want you to do this. The first thing we talked about last week in the introduction was this if we don't appreciate the standards of the Word, the standards of the Word, that first blank is the standards, the standards, we won't desire to study the Word of God, or to know the Word of God. So those first two there. The first point we had on there in the main body of your lesson was, it's a timeless book of relevance, R-E-L-E-V-A-N-C-E, relevance. The second point we talked about last week was it's a truthful book of reliability. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight in this lesson on receiving of the Bible. But it, the second point was it's a truthful book of reliability. The third point is it's a Treasured book of reverence, reverence, that we reverence the Bible. And then we closed it out by those things, those three lines in your, in your uh, lesson from last week was this simply is, the reality of the Bible is a collection of books. It is a collection of books. We're going to see about that here in just a few moments, what that means, the Latin word biblia, biblia means. But it's a collection of books. Also, it has a common theme. That common theme is it's about God's relationship with mankind. This whole Bible is about God's relationship with mankind, but it has that common theme. And then the last line last week, when that, and that closed, as we closed it down, it has a central theme. The central theme is that last blank, and that simply is the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. So tonight I want to do this. I want us to talk about the receiving of the Bible. This study that, that we are looking at is basically, it's based upon what we call the Bible, God's holy word. And um, tonight, I told you I was going to do sh uh, show and tell each week, and last week I brought you a little red uh, Gideon Bible that me and Joel, when we were in, at elementary school, was given in 1972 and 1973, I think. And tonight, I want to share with you something real, before I start, a little Bible that I was given in December, for Christmas of December, in December of 1978, my mama. This was my first actual Bible that I was ever given. And this, this Bible here is the Bible that <clears throat> is the first book I ever read from cover to cover. I struggled reading. It was a couple of years after I got this that I actually began to read. And Joel will tell you, I was not the best student. I, I'll tell you this, a lot of the guys say, man, I, I never made a C. <laughs> I was tickled to death with a C. Uh, but uh, uh, you too, praise the Lord, brother. Appreciate you. <laughs> But as you look this tonight, I want us to think about the receiving of the Bible. I said last week, if you want to be turning in your Bible to the Psalm, the 119th chapter. 
And tonight, as we look at the Psalm 119, remember last week I told you this about Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It consists of 176 verses. And the good thing about Psalm 119 is this. Every single verse, every verse in Psalm 119 deals with the Word of God. It's to help and to helps us to know and to understand what this Bible's about. So Psalm 119 is a great uh, chapter when you begin to look into God's Word. As we look here tonight, I want you to look in Psalm 119, and the one verse is our text tonight. We're going to look at a couple of other verses, but this is our text for tonight. It says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy word is settled. In other words, when you and I begin to think about God's word and what it means that it is settled, uh, that word means it stands fast without change. And so when you think about the receiving of the Bible, when you and I think about what am I holding in my hand? When I hold this old Bible my mama got me for Christmas in 1978, what am I holding in my hand? What do you have, whether it be on a phone, a tablet, whatever uh, you have as far as word, God's Word, what are we really holding? We talked about a little bit last week what it is. Tonight, let's think about this. How do we get it? How did we get this Bible, the receiving of God's Word? So as we look at it tonight and we think about it, that that verse of Scripture says, Thy word is settled in heaven. It changes not. It doesn't change. Methods change, but the message never changes of God's word. And you've got a little area of notes out there, and I want you to write down some things. If you would, I'm going to give you some stuff in addition to what you've got on the handout for tonight. But also that, that word Bible, we think of the word Bible. We use it pretty commonly. You've been raised in church all your life. You raised your Bible. You went to Bible school, vacation Bible school. And we talk about the study of the Bible. The Bible is a Latin word. Bible is a Latin word. We get it from Biblia, which it simply means this. It meaning, its meaning is books. It's a collection of books. We'll see here in just a moment. But it's a collection of books. It's, it's a book like no other. It is not a book like any other book that's ever been. This book of the Bible is, is really made, made up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Gideon Bible that I showed you last week was a New Testament. That word testament means it's a covenant. It refers to a covenant, and it, means it refers to the covenant between God and his people. So when you're thinking about the Bible as you look through it and people says this, it's difficult for me, and there's a couple of lessons I'm going to give you that will be on how we're to study God's Bible and how it's easier to do that. But a lot of people say it's very complicated, but it's a love book. But as you look at it here tonight, I want you to look on your introduction, on your handout, and follow along with me if you would. Here's what I would tell you. On the receiving of the Bible, the Bible is where we learn about these things. First of all, we learn about it's the foundation of what we call Christianity. Christianity. Now, we live in an area of the world where Christianity is a pretty common thing. I'm a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be Christ-like, a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I like the term and the phrase nowadays. I don't like to label ourselves. Somebody says, are you a Baptist or, or what are you? My, my great-grandfather was actually a Methodist pastor up in Cock County. And so our background was Methodist. I was raised in an independent Baptist church. I've been a long-time member of a Southern Baptist church. But I tell you what, when some folks ask me about that nowadays, I tell them this. I am a Christ follower. I am a follower of Christ. I am a Bible-believing Christ follower. So it's based upon this Bible. Now, 
you ask yourself, it's the foundation of Christianity. It's also this, this. The Bible is where we learn also, the second thing in our introduction is, it's about the human condition. Our human condition is this. <clears throat> We're sinners in need of a Savior. We see that. We see, and my wife talked last night on, um, at her Bible study, for she does a women's Bible study on Tuesday nights with a group of women, and she was teaching on the subject of Eve and, um, and the subject of sin. And what happens is we talk about the human condition. You, you want to talk about anything about our human condition, it's found in the Bible. The other thing about this is when the Bible is where we learn also about the third thing on in your introduction is, is God's plan of salvation through Christ. It's God's plan of salvation through Christ. The human condition is this. We're sinners in need of a Savior. I use this term. You may not like this term, but I, I think of myself this. I'm just a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Now, I will tell you this. I am from the old school to where I'm tired of the, the preachers and preacher boys and, and teachers getting up and saying they kick their heels and they say, I'm just an old sinner. I'm just no sinner saved by grace. Well, no, you're not. No, you're not. You've been redeemed. You've been bought. And, and so here's the human condition. We're sinners, but God made a way through the plan of salvation through Christ. The Bible is how we get that. That's how we find out that we've got that. So let's move on this morning, this tonight, and here's what I want us to do. The receiving of the Bible. The first thing I want you to notice is this. The timeline of the Bible. The timeline of the Bible is this. I said it was made up into two parts. It's an Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, the timeline of the Bible was this. It was written over a span of 1,500 years, approximately 1,500 years. Now, you get that because most books nowadays are written within just a short period of time. But this Bible that you and I read was written over a period of about 1,500 years. It's amazing. We'll see here in a moment how it has stood the test of time, but it was written over a span of about 1,500 years. Here's the other thing about the timeline of the Bible is this. It was written by right at what I would say 40 authors, 40 writers. You think of this. I said the Biblia means a collection of books. It means it's a collection, it's books, and it's a collection of books written by a bunch of different authors. That's amazing when you think about it. The Bible is a book like no other. It's a book like no other. So it was written over 1,500 years, written by about 40 authors. Here's the other thing about it. It's a collection of many books. It's a collection of many, many books. When we look in just a moment at the canon of how we got the Bible in the form it is now and why it was a collection of books and how they organized that, well, you think about this. How many books do you know of or that you've read is a, is a, a collection or a combination of a bunch of different books? And that's what the Bible is, the timeline of it. it. took a long time to write. took a lot of authors and writers to write the Bible. And then it's that collection that has been put together that you and I have in the form that it is now. The other thing about the timeline is this. We, we always think of this. It was written in three languages, three. Now, we know the, most of the Old Testament was written in what we call Hebrew. There's Aramaic. And then most of all of the New Testament is in what's called Greek. Now, I want to ask you something. How many of you speak Hebrew? And if you raise your hand, then I, uh, that's fantastic. Most all of us do not re read Hebrew. And most of us can't read Greek. 
Now, as you go to seminary, you learn a lot of those Greek and Hebrew words, and you have to look them up, and you get these concordance books that you have to look them up and see what the true meanings of them are. But it was written in those three languages. Here's the other unique thing about the timeline of the Bible. It was written on three continents, really written on three continents. That was Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's hard to believe none of the Bible came out of Andersonville or Norse, isn't it? But it was written on, in Africa, Asia, and in Europe, parts of Europe. So it's amazing to me when I sit and I think about the timeline of, of the Bible that we look at nowadays and, and we think about how it come together. Um, some people say it takes a lot of faith to believe that the Bible is true. Well, I, I just think the opposite. I think it takes a lot more faith to believe it isn't true. Because you cannot just put this together. So when you look at the timeline of the Bible, those are the things that we, we talk about. The second thing I would tell you about the receiving of the Bible is what we call the transmission, the transmission of the Bible. And when you look at the transmission, here's what we see in the transmission of the Bible. It's very, very, um, very much that we looked at last week, and I think it's on the back of your, of your booklet, that word theonoustos. We talked a little bit about this last week. I want you to turn with me again to 2 Timothy, the third chapter there in the 16th verse. And there's that key word that we, we see there when it talks about when we see the transmission of this Bible. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verse 16, it says, All Scripture, all Scripture, this Bible, it says it is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It means that this, mean, this word the, theonoustos, it means God-breathed. It's literally meaning that God spoke it. He breathed it. So when you, and I think of the transmission of the Bible, I love how it says all Scripture, all of it, this whole Bible was God-breathed. Now, the word doctrine means your Bible teaching. So when you begin to look and begin to study your Bible, know this, it is just like God is breathing that word. It's important to realize and know what that means. I love how you put it on the back of these the handouts. But when you think about that, I love the verse of Scripture we talked a little bit about last week. I don't think we brought this verse up, but in 1 Peter, that first chapter, in verses 20 and 21, again, talking about the transmission of the Bible, it says, knowing this, first, that prophecy of Scripture is, is, of, is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And I'm reading from a King James Version, but it says they were moved. They were moved. It was God-breathed, and he used men to, to pin down his words. That's the Bible. The transmission of the Bible is, is one that is unique. It's different than any other book that's ever been written. So when you come in here on Sunday mornings and your pastor gets up here to begin to preach the Word of God to you and he is referencing the Bible, understand the timeline of what took place and then the transmission to get that Word to us. The other thing about it is this. Here's, here's what people always ask. Well, okay, so it's transmitted. It was God-breathed, but he used men. He used men to do it. Well, there's got to be some fallacy in that, right? Well, here's what happens. When you and I begin to think about it, there's a couple of things 
Always remember this, the message remains intact. On your hand out there, there's a, it's a part. The message always remains intact. Now, even though it's God-breathed, he used men that, uh, that was God-breathed and through men that was moved by the Holy Ghost to get this word to us. So what took place, the message remains intact. Here's what I would tell you. There's a couple of things that I've got you that you can fill out there. First one is variance. What is variance? Um, and I'm not going to go in depth on this because it's, it's something that is, um, you touch on it. If you want to study it more, your pastor will probably do that for you. He's real smart, and I'll let him do it. But variance is simply this. It means that it's just errors or changes that are very slight. Because you and I, we talk different, don't we? Now, my wife says if, when I get up to, to, to talk anywhere, I talk differently than I do at home. Now, I'm going to give you an example of that here in just a few moments. But I will assure you that the message remains intact, that the variants are very slight, and the changes are slight, and, there's, and the errors or, or changes are really slight in there. Somebody always says this. They says, so does the Bible contradict itself? You ever heard it? Y'all never heard that. People say, does the Bible contradict? No, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. You have different viewpoints. Just like in the four Gospels, they're all from four different viewpoints. So what I'm telling you is the variance or those errors or those changes are really slight. Here's the other thing, the canon. That next blank fill in, it's the canon. What we call the canonization. Now, I want to I share with you a little bit about the canonization because here's, here's what happens. When we think about the canonization of the Bible, the Old Testament was pretty much set, okay? Because the Old Testament was already accepted and it was codified, or I guess what you would call that. And the books were access, uh, accepted by the Jewish people as divinely inspired, okay? But then we come to the New Testament. We have what we call the four Gospels. You know there's other Gospels. You know that, right? Why are they not included in our Bible? We'll see here in just a few moments. But when we talk about the canonization, understand what that word means, canonization. The word canon means this. It's a measuring read. And on your handout, I think I just put the word standard, but I want you to out to the right of it. I want you to write in what it means. The standard, it means the standard, uh, what it, by the standard by which the, the, um, something is measured is a better explanation of that. How you measure it. That's what canonization means. So uh, I, uh, I know a lot of preachers, we, we get up and we, we talk and we say, you know, this canon that we have, uh, first time I ever heard it, you know what I thought, right? I thought they was talking about a fire uh, canon you fire. But when you think about this, it's, it's that collection, but it is also that where it's measured by. It's the measuring read or the standard by something is measured. So when you think about this, the, the canonization of the New Testament, here's what happens. In the New Testament, there was three things that come into play. And um, I think if you, you want to write it out to the right, here's what happened when they began to canonize what we call our Bible in the New Testament especially. There was a couple of things they did. There was three things actually. It said they, it had to conform to the faith between the doc, doctrine and orthodoxy of Christianity. Obviously. Obviously. The second thing that they did when they were beginning to canonize these religious leaders was the, the document had to have some type of uh, include somebody's interactions with the apostles. 
So think about that. Without going in depth, they went overboard to make sure that they, the collection they were putting together for you and I, it had some, some credibility to it. The third thing that they would do was this. It was, it was really something that the document had to be widespread and, and had to be accepted by the churches everywhere. So that, in a nutshell, is really what the canonization of what the Bible is that you and I get together. Um, sometimes we find, we find it difficult to, to believe that, you know, what about those other books? What about the Maccabees and all these other books that people ask about? I'm not a smart aleck. I try not to be a smart aleck. My wife says I can be, but here's how my reply to that. And somebody says, what about the other books? What about that book of Thomas? What about the Gospel of Thomas? Well, the book of Thomas got, uh, the Gnostics got a hold of it, and I'm glad they didn't put it in there. There's, one, uh, there's a story of a little boy in the book of Thomas that says that Jesus let this little boy die, just intentionally. But when people ask me about the, what about these other books? Here's my reply to them. Why don't you do this? Why don't you get in the books that are in there? Get in there. Study this. So I don't want to be smart aleck to them, but that's my reply. So we see the timeline, first of all. We see the transmission. The third thing I would tell you is this. What about the trustworthiness? How trustworthy is the Bible, the trustworthiness of the Bible? Well, as we look tonight at, at some things, and... Um, and you bear with me because I, I want to be, uh, be as thorough, but I want to be uh, concise as well um, because I think if I let you dig a little deeper, you'll find out that God's Word is true. It's inerrant. It's timeless. We've talked about that. But what about the trustworthiness of it? Well, I'm going to give you two things here, and if we go on and you've got some words there to begin with, hey, I think I've got you five words and here's what I would tell you. Remember this. There's four words there. But think about it this way. The trustworthiness is this. Right out to your right. I'm going to give you two words that start with S. Scientific accuracy and in spiritual accuracy. How trustworthy. I can tell you this much. I have a, I have a, I have a really hectic schedule and a lot of stuff to do and I can tell you if I did not think this word was trustworthy enough and reliable I wouldn't do what I do but I know for a fact this word is true and it's trustworthy so when I say it's there's scientific accuracy let me look at some things with you first of all I want to tell you this archaeologist confirms it archaeology how many of you in this room have been to the holy land any of you several of you and I know your pastor's got you a trip for those of you that can do it uh, coming up at the end of this year. There is findings all over that region over there, and archaeologists find things all the time. I don't know if you remember the movie, The, Ark of the, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. Great movie. And, uh, and it was really interesting. And that stuff goes on. And so we think of this, archaeologist confirms it. There's findings all the time. The manuscripts and other things and pieces of, of different documents and things that have been found. So archaeologist confirms it. That's why it's trustworthy. The other thing about it, the trustworthiness of the Bible, is this. Secondly, astrology confirms it. And you say, wow, astrology? 
Does astrology really confirm the Bible's trustworthiness? Absolutely. The Bible itself, uh, somebody asked me, what's the best commentary you ever read on the Bible? It's, well, I think Joel would probably agree with me. It's the Bible. The Bible's the best commentary on the Bible. But astrology confirms it in different ways. I want you to look with me back in the book of Job, that great encouraging book of the book of Job. The book of Job there in the 26th chapter and verse number 7. He says this in verse number 7, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. You know what that is? That's gravity. When you can suspend and hang nothing in space. You and I are sitting here tonight. Did you know if there was no gravity, what you would be doing? Sure. But gravity, astrology tells us, and it confirms to the Bible's trustworthiness. Now, it's not on your handout if you want to write these verses out there. In verse number 8 there in Job the 28th, 26th chapter, verse number 8, here's something else it does. It talks about the water cycle. It says there in the 8th verse, He bindeth up the waters in the thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. That's the cloud retains water and rain. And then the other thing there, and turn it over a page in the book of Job there in the 28th chapter, I think it's the 28th chapter in the 5th verse. Here's what it tells us. It talks about the earth's very core in the Bible. As for the earth, and out of it cometh bread, and under it is turneth up as it were fire. So you begin to look at how astrology confirms it. Well, what do we say about that? Well, look with me at the book of Isaiah. It's on your handout in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, and verse number 22. Now, when um, I, uh, I think about astrology, I always think of that people say, what's your sign? <laughs> I, uh, you know, it goes by your birthday. I know the moons and the blood moons and stuff like that. You know where we get that? From the Bible. From the Bible. There's some people that swears up and down, if you're a Pisces or an Aries, you shouldn't marry a certain sign. But I want to tell you how the Bible is so trustworthy through astrology. Um, we kind of take for granted all these things like the earth being suspended in space, don't we? We think of those, um, when I, I said that in Job, where it talked about he hangeth it on nothing. Well, before we turn to Isaiah here, let me, let me tell you this. Egyptians used to believe that the earth was suspended by five pillars. As, nonsens- as nonsensical that sounds, that's what they believed instead of the Bible's trustworthiness. There was other things that they would do. The Greeks believed that the earth was held up on the back of a, of a giant. That giant's name was Atlas. That was their belief. We see those things nowadays. We don't think about that, but the Greeks and, and the advertisement where he's, he's holding it up on his back, that's what they thought. We also know that the, the Hindus believed that the earth stood on the backs of elephants, these huge elephants and uh, huge tortoises, huge coiled serpents. And you say, now, why would they believe that? Well, I believe the Bible explained to us what astrology has taught a lot of people over the years. It confirms the trustworthiness of the Bible. So when we turn over to Isaiah, there in Isaiah, I want you to notice something there in Isaiah, the 40th chapter and the 22nd verse. It says, It is is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof, 
or as grasshoppers that stretched out the heavens in a, as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That phrase there in the King James Version, the circle of the earth. Do you realize there's still people to this day that believes the earth is flat? They believe the whole uh, landing on the moon was a hoax. I don't know about you, but I remember, I'm probably Joel remembers, I remember where I was at when they first landed on the moon, what they had on television that night or that day. But there's a lot of people that said, you know, the, I believe it now that the earth is round, but for years and years people thought it was flat. The Bible confirms it years ago. There when he said in Isaiah, when he said the circle of the earth, um, I want to give you something that I read this. I was trying to pull this up, and, and I want to just for, for sake of knowing, here, here's kind of the thought pattern of what has went on through the years when we think about astrology. Well, in 1492, we know Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That was something they say you learned in school. I, I never heard that before. That was it something we learned. Did they teach that to us? I was out that day. But the, those sayings, so we come to this and we think about the circle or the sphere or the globe. Um, Hippocrates, I think is the way you pronounce it. He was a, uh, a Greek astrologer. Well, he, he, he came up with some apparatus that were in 150 B.C. He said there was 1,022 stars in the sky. He counted them. 1,022 stars in the sky. Well, we fast forward 250 years to some fellow named Ptolemy. And Ptolemy was a Roman astrologer. And he says, nope, you're wrong. There's 1,026. I've counted them. 1,022. 250 years later, another guy comes along and says, there's 1,026 stars in the sky. Well, then we see that almost 15 or about... Uh, Oh, how many years later? 1,300 years later, Galileo has this, some kind of telescope he's come up with, and he says, no, they're not even close. There are millions of stars in the sky. Well, now we come to today, and with the Hubble telescope and these other telescopes that they've, they've come up with, we now know that there are billions upon billions of stars in the skies and galaxies and stars, we can't even number them. We've spent a lot of time worrying about that, haven't we? Guess what? The trustworthiness of the Bible is this. Look with me in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, there in the 33rd chapter in the 22nd verse, he says, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measures, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. That first part of that verse of Scripture says that the host of heaven cannot be numbered. The stars in the skies cannot be numbered. When I talk to somebody, somebody says this, do you, do, do you witness? Do you share with other people the gospel? Well, when you do, you should. And one of the great things is this. The Bible says they are without excuse. In the first chapter, I believe, of the book of Romans, it says they can go out into the night sky, look up into the sky, see all of those stars. They are without excuse if they don't believe in God. So we see the trustworthiness of this is, is that the, the astrology confirms it. Here's something else I would give you. Not only when we see the archaeologist confirms it, astrology confirms it, 
but also anatomy confirms it. Anatomy, our body, the anatomy of, of you and I. Well, here's what I would tell you. How does an anatomy confirm it? In the book of Levi, uh, Leviticus, in the 17th chapter, there in the 14th verse, it talks about this subject of blood. And, and blood, let me tell you this. It says there in that verse, it says, For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. In other words, in a nutshell, the life of you and I is in the blood. And here's, let me tell you some scientific, I, I looked at this, I wanted to find out about this, but when I think about anatomy and, and uh, biology, I was not good, uh, so I've had to make up for that by trying to, to research some things. But blood, here's what it, blood does for you and I, and uh, most of us can't stand the sight of blood or don't like needles, but blood carries food to the cells, blood also carries away the waste from the cells, blood is the energy of the set, to the cells. Blood fights disease. My dear sweet mother-in-law, which is the greatest, strongest Christian influence of my lifetime, passed away in 1990 at the age of 48. She had blood cancer. And I remember going, and, and we shared with her that, that verse of Scripture, the life is in the blood. She knew it well. But you think about this. What about blood? It maintains a constant temperature in our body. I'm going to give you a little history here about when we think about the biology and, and our anatomy. It says in the year 1615, there was a physician by the name of William Harvey. He discovered that blood circulates in the body. Now, you think about this time frame. You and I, we, we go and we see all these diagrams. We have these scans, and now we know kind of how the body works. One of, my sons, one of our sons is a, was a kinesiology major. And he has these diagrams and these books and things on the tablet that shows everything about the body. Ligaments, blood, and all everything that helps the circulatory system. But you think about this. So the trustworthy of the Bible is, is this, that anatomy even confirms it. But here, this, this is something I find really interesting. When you get bad blood, it causes sickness. How many of you still go to a barber shop where they have a barber pole that's red and white? You ever see those? Do you know where that came from? Used to, times, times ago, the barber pole represented those bandages. And the barbers, what they would do, they would cut you when you went into the barber, not just to get a haircut, but if you were sick, they would cut you and they would bleed. You would bleed into a basin to help cure you. <laughs> Probably why I don't have any hair. I'm afraid to, afraid to go to the barber. But here's the thing about that. When you think about that, uh, George Washington, our very first president, did you know how he died? That very process. He bled to death. They would go to the barber. They would cut him. They'd bleed in the basin. Well, our first president, that's how he died. So what would I say when I say trustworthy, the anatomy confirms it? When I said that about blood, Leviticus says the life is in the blood. The other thing with the verse that I have on your hand out there, look at with me at the book of Numbers. There in the book of Numbers in the 19th chapter, it talks about this subject of what we call germs. Germs, it's in the Bible. But for years, we didn't know what this thing was, a germ. In 2020, every one of us started wearing masks because we were trying to control the spread of certain diseases. It goes back to what this called is germs. 
So when you look at that in Numbers, it talks about this is the year of the law, when a man dieth in a tent and all that come into the tent, all that in the tent shall be unclean seven days. I'm not going to read it because of time, but when you read that down to verse number 19, it's given a description of someone that is germ-infested. It talks about germs. We know the stories there that talks about those with leprosy, and they would have a mask, a, a covering, and they would say, unclean, unclean. They would have to pronounce it. And that was because of what's called germs. So we find in the Bible the trustworthiness of the Bible is because of the anatomy we see there in Leviticus in the book of Numbers. It talks about blood and germs years before we ever found out because of the doctors and people that we have now. The other thing that I would say about that is the last thing under the trustworthiness of the Bible is this, the, it's accuracy of history confirms it. Accuracy of history confirms it. I'm not going to read this passage, but in Daniel, the fifth chapter, when you read Daniel, the fifth chapter, the verses 5 through 31, it is a story about a character by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar has now been found. We have history confirms this. It's accuracy of this particular character from the Bible years ago. But that we have found, just archaeologists have found just in the recent years, his writings and this very story that is talked about here in Daniel chapter 5. So you look at it, you say, how trustworthy is the Bible? Well, I believe it's real, real accurate. I believe it's very trustworthy. I will give you something to write out to the right here. I want you to write this out. Here's the way we do this. When we begin to look at, and we think about the trustworthiness of God's Word, here's how God does it in His divine order. He takes, write this out, God's divine order is this. First of all, is fact. It's a fact. All these things have been fact, and now we know it's trustworthy because the Bible backs it up by the fact. And then comes the second thing in His order is this, is faith. It's the faith. When you and I, do we need faith? to believe it. And then the last thing in his order is feeling. You know, the weakest thing about us is our emotions and our feelings. I don't feel like that's right. I don't feel like this is truth. But God's divine order is, first of all, it's a fact. It's faith and it's feeling. Now, human beings, our order is this. We go, first of all, on feeling. Then we go to faith. And then the third thing is fact. I, I hear people say this, this expression a lot, and you, you back me on this if you would, if you've heard this. Somebody says, well, God's Word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. It <laughs> don't settle nothing because you believe it. It's settled because God said it. You and I need to believe it, but God said it, and that settles it. So the trustworthiness of God's Word, the Bible, Here's what I would tell you, that last point, the fourth point I want you to fill in is this, the translation of the Bible. Now, here's where we all want to get to, right? The translation of the Bible. I said that we, we used the canonization of our Bible and how we got this, the transmission of the Bible, how we got it. But we've got that human element of this. Um, the English Bible that you and I have now there was the King James Version Bible. Uh, 
I still read from a King James and, and, and share from a King James Version Bible for a couple of reasons. I, uh, that's the, where I, my memorization verses, uh, and it's been difficult for me to do, was in a King James Version Bible. I study from about four or five different variations and versions. But what about the translation of the Bible? Well, the word translation means it's, it's to translate, it's, it's God's, remember this, it's God's inspired, preserved word into another language. Do you realize until 1611, the King James Version, now, and I, I'm going to challenge you with something, and, and um, <clears throat> I go to a lot of churches, okay? I appreciate y'all having me here for a little while, and you don't have to have me back, but I don't, I don't try not to offend people, but I have some folks, I have such a broad spectrum of folks that I see. And, and I, I go to those churches that, man, we're King James only. I say, God bless you. I go to other churches. What do you use, English Standard Version? Uh, uh, New, Eng- what is New English Translation. All of those, those different translations. So, so what about them? That's the most common question I get. Anytime I would speak on this subject, people say, which translation is the best? Okay. Well, I'm not going to tell you that. But I will tell you this much. When I say the translation, translation, there's two elements that needs to, when they begin to translate the Bible. Here's what it is. When, somebody, when you see a translation, no matter what translation you've got, it, it, first of all, it needs to come from a correct source. You need to make sure it comes from a correct source. Um, and when I say translation, be careful of this. A lot of folks, there's translations, and then there's what's called paraphrase. Okay? Paraphrase just means you just kind of combine some words and just kind of what I say. I say this. You know, we all have those words that we say a lot. I say in a nutshell. Well, it's just kind of condensing it. But when you look at this, it's, also, it's from a correct source, but it's also it needs to be accurately rendered. Accurately rendered. So when you look at the translations, I have a list. If you want to come up to me, I'll give you uh, the years they came out and all the, the different translations uh, that there are. But here's what I would tell you uh, in lessons uh, Five and six, I'm going to give you two lessons on the recipe for studying God's Word, studying the Bible. And one thing I have found is this. Um, when you find a translation that is accurate, go to your pastor, uh, but be careful. I'm going to tell you my story now. Joel has shared this story with you. And uh, it's important that you get a translation that is that you can understand. So many years ago, I was a member of a, a, a volunteer to help with the Promise Keepers Crusade here in Knoxville. It was at Thompson Bowling Arena. It's a true story, folks. I'm not making this up. And um, so I'm there, and I go to volunteer, and I said, what do you need? And they said, well, we need greeters and ushers and people to help them with them. There's several thousand of men coming. And I said, oh, that's fine. I said, I'd like, to, I'd like to be an altar counselor. I'd like to counsel with them. They said, well, we've got enough of those. And I said, okay. No problem. Well, I actually watched them training those counselors. There was a stage area there, and I think John, uh, John Maxwell was there. There's a lot of big-name preachers there. So there was an area at the, at the stage there, Thompson Bowling Arena, on the floor. So I, I went through the – I watched them train those counselors. Well, it came Saturday, the day of the appeal. And so they come to the day of the appeal, and, and I mean, men began to move. There was probably 10, 12,000, maybe 15,000 guys there. 
And they began to move, and they came down there, and I seen right away they didn't have enough altar counselors. I was going to go help them. So I got down there, and, man, I got, me, I got me a spot up there close to the stage, and, man, I began to grab those guys, and I'd pull them in, and I was telling them, say, you're getting God's Word. You're getting this Word right here. I want you to study it. I got me a box of those Bibles out from under that stage, and I began to hand them fellas, every one of them I talked to, a Bible. And I said, you see this verse of Scripture right here? You get, you get that, go into there, and, and you read that. And I, I was telling them different things. And I gave away every single Bible from that box. And I looked down, and I seen that empty box there, and it said Spanish Bibles. My first thought was this, oh, no. And then I thought, every one of them redneck bubbas is going to go home and say, boy, that, well, that King James Version is really hard to read. It's a true story. But I say that to this when you come to your translation that you read. There are some translations that I would recommend you stay away from. Uh, but there are some really good modern translations. I think my son, uh, Common English, I think I gave him one of those, um, New King James Version. And um, so I've given them the ones that I believe that are reputable and credible. I will tell you this, and I know I'm going to wrap up here. I want you to, uh, to think about this, is that when you think about your translation, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the coming week, maybe next week. But your translations, when you're reading a translation, you're reading, if it's a good, reputable translation, you're reading God's Word. Somebody says, that's not, that's man's Word. The King James 1611 Bible, I don't know about you, but I actually have a copy of, uh, of my father-in-law, which was a Bible, uh, he, he was a great Bible teacher. Went home to be the Lord about four, five years ago now. And I've got his library of stuff now. And he, gave, he had a book, it's the actual 1611 King James Bible. If you have a King James Bible now, that's not a 1611 uh, that's a little later version of it. I can't even read the 1611 one. But there are some, and I say, God bless you. That's what you grew up with. It's good. It's a good, good, reputable translation. But that's, um, that's something I'll, uh, it, maybe later or sometime after we get done, I'll, uh, I'll share with you. You come up and you ask me, and I'll, I'll give you some stuff. Here's what I'm going to close with. Remember this about the Bible. Remember that the Bible is for this. Four little blanks there at the bottom. It's First of all, it's for information. It is to get information. Here's what I get myself I'm guilty of. I'm, in, I'm giving you information overload. I'm going to dump a bunch of stuff on you, and that's not good. Um, but, but the Bible is for information. And you remember last week we talked about all of those circumstances you and I go through in life? Well, the Bible has the information for you there. It's also for this. It's also for interpretation. Now, don't get confused when it talks about interpretation. Here's a phrase that we use a lot of time. This verse means this to me. It may mean something totally different than you. We do that. When we do that, we're trying to set up our own doctrine. We're setting up our own theology and, and to, to kind of cater to our lifestyle. Um, I love the homosexuals, but I will tell you this much. It's hit my family. I know, I know and I minister, and I have witnessed to a lot of homosexuals. And, and the Bible is really plain on certain subjects. Now, your pastor probably does a great job. of You've got to cover all of that as a pastor. But the Bible is not just for you and I to interpret it from the standpoint of it caters to my lifestyle. It is very plain. 
on certain subjects. The other thing, it's not only for information, it's not only for interpretation, but it is also for application. It's for application. It's for you and I in our life application type things. In my teaching, I know your pastor does the same thing. When you leave, we want to give you something that applies to your life. When you walked in tonight, here's what you were thinking. How's this going to impact me? What is this going to do for me? Well, I hope it helps you to grow closer to the Lord to where you're going to be in his word. The last thing I would give you there, remember that the Bible is for this. It's also for transformation. If I don't do anything at all and you walk in here and you see God's word and you begin to read God's word and your pastor gets up here to preach and he pours his heart out to you and, and you do nothing about it and it doesn't transform you, then we've missed our calling of what we're to do. God's word, the Bible, transforms us. Romans 12, 2, when it says, be not conformed to this word, but be transformed, that Greek word metamorphized means to be changed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. People say, man, I need to change. And get in God's word. That's the challenge I'd give you. Um, I'm going to close with that. There's many other things that you think about, but the receiving of the Bible was that that you and I, the bottom line on it is this, that it is, we, we've received God's Word. It is God's Word. It's inerrant. It's timeless. It's reputable. And you and I need to be in it and study it. If you're a follower of Christ, then you need to get in God's Word and start to begin to, as I said last week, learn it, love it, and live it. That's what we're to do with God's Word. But let me pray for us, all right? Father, these names that have been mentioned here tonight, there's many. There's some that are sick, some with cancer, um, some that are hurting in a lot of ways, Father. I want to ask you just to meet those needs. Father, we've called them out by name tonight. And, Father, I pray that um, whatever the need is, do for them that which they cannot do for themselves. Father, for this little 10-year-old Ava and for her brother, a 7-year-old, that is needing some direction in their life, I'm praying for that to happen. And, Lord, all these other requests, maybe they they didn't mention them, but you know their hearts. There may be somebody here tonight that um, is really hurting, maybe financially, maybe physically, maybe relationships and home or marriage, whatever it may be. Help them, Father, meet their need. And, Lord, I pray your blessings upon this church as a whole. Meet their need in every way, Lord, financially, physically, spiritually, Pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place that it will be a place where people will come to know you as Lord and Savior, that they will grow, that this church will disciple them and equip them to go out in this community and beyond and be a light in this world of darkness. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.